We say good morning. Good morning. All right, that's pretty robust. I like that. Hey, we move into uh, a new chapter, Mark 3. And we're going to witness the last of the five conflict narratives. There's five of them. They're just kind of grouped, <clears throat> starting in chapter 2 early. And then as we move up to where we're at, we, we've seen the uh, laws and the regulations and rules, the legalism of the Pharisees and the elders and the scribes. And starting in chapter 2, verse 7, Jesus, by His actions, shows the religiosity and the self-righteousness of the Pharisees as He does in each uh, sequence. Uh, He forgave the paralytic whenever He was lowered down in that house right in front of Jesus. But the religious leaders saw that and Jesus just forgave him. He just said, your sins are forgiven and that was it. Of course, then he, He healed him. But we know the reaction of the Pharisees. How can you forgive? You know, how can you do that? Uh, this was blasphemy to them. Then in chapter 2, uh, verse 16, Jesus called Levi, and you remember him, the tax collector. And nobody likes tax collectors unless you're a tax collector. Uh, well, the, what happened is, as a result of that, Jesus called him to follow him. Uh, throughout his ministry, this tax collector follows Jesus. As a matter of fact, he went to his house, and not only that, then who else were there? The more sinners and tax collectors. And Jesus ate right with them. And we know the self-righteous leaders of the religious day there were angered by this. Then there was another issue dealing with fasting, and you might remember that. I dealt with that a couple of weeks, I think, uh, ago. And the Pharisees did twice a week. Jesus' disciples did nothing. They did not fast. So, we, uh, we, we moved on and we saw that the Pharisees are appalled at Jesus at everything that He does and His disciples do. And then the fourth controversial issue is dealing with the Sabbath. And uh, that is really the big uh, tickle of it all because that is at the heart of Judaism, the Sabbath. And, of course, the law of Moses was fine, the way that God had set, but what does man do with God's laws? And, of course, they add on and take away and move it around and make it fit. Usually they add to it, these legalists do. Uh, And then we move on to what is the fifth one, and it's going to be dealing with the Sabbath also, another Sabbath controversy. So he gets a a couple of those in a row. And uh, conflict. Conflict is arising. And you can't heal on the Sabbath. That's what this issue is about. They were working on the Sabbath by picking grains off uh, out of the fields. And now it's dealing with healing on the Sabbath. Let's see what he does here. And so they kind of set this thing up. They're just waiting for Jesus to slip up and make some kind of error on the Sabbath again. And so they can go back, go back to their uh, other religious leaders, make a report, and then indict him. And not only indicting, but killing. And that's what they're really after. Now, that's one thing we're going to look at. That's that's the Sabbath deal. And of course, we had, uh, we're right in the middle of that other issue last week. Now we're going to go also to uh, another situation of Jesus. And it's where He's hated by one group and by another group. He is absolutely the most popular man ever on earth. And I think you can say that literally. Even today, he is very popular. People know who he is. For 2,000 
years, you know, people have been talking about him. The church exists uh, because of that. But there's great demands upon Jesus in his ministry. The, the demands are absolutely tremendous that we can't even imagine. When you've had people just surrounding you totally. Always. We're talking thousands of people. Thousands. And His popularity is just growing more. Can you imagine the pressure on Jesus in His humanity? And we know that that's one reason why He retreats as often as He can. And He retreats and prays to the Father you know, for strength and everything that, uh, that He had done during the day. But He coped with pressure. And uh, we have pressure. We as human beings are going to have pressure, aren't we? Boy, we, do we deal with it? Constantly, we have pressure. How do we do? What do we do with it? Well, there's a contrast, as we see, the religious leaders and then the regular people. Most of the people over all Israel um, just think he's the greatest thing that's ever hit for what they can get out of him. Most of them would say probably really. Um, he's followed by thousands, tens of thousands everywhere. They're coming from every direction to see here feel whatever they can they they want to learn what he's saying and uh, you know his teaching is incredible but the healing is supernatural and they're definitely bringing uh, everybody because of that nobody had ever done anything in the history of mankind like what he had done and so this is an incredible thing as as we look at this this is this is real and it's true now there's a guy by the name of Kent Hughes who writes really good commentaries and he said on this Putting it all together, the ill, the feverish, the crippled were pushing and grabbing at Jesus and falling all over him. The demonized were malevolently seizing him up with howling his name in futuristic combat. The jaundiced Pharisees were watching his every move. You like these words? They're not mine, are they? <laughs> Waiting for their chance. <laughs> the jaundiced Pharisees. Every move, every move that he's getting, so they can get him. They're ready to jump all over him. And uh, they've seen enough. So, in other words, this human strain of pressure is on him in an incredible way. And and in every situation, and it goes all day long. And we have to be admiring Jesus in his humanness to be able to to take this. You know, to to be in awe of him. Uh, to have opposite responses. In one way, you have people that he knows that are trying to kill him. and another way, all these people want to be around him always. What do you do with that? I mean, what a conflict. So he understands what it is to be pressurized. He understands what we feel like when we have pressure. We have pressure, don't we? We have it. We have all sorts of different things come at us. How are we going to handle it? Some, sometimes we do pretty well. Sometimes we do very good. And then other times we just blow it. You know, the pressure comes, boom, what do we do? Well, if we look at the way that Jesus does it, I mean, His method to deal with pressure is absolutely perfect. And uh, in our day and age, okay, can we take a little bit of this home with us a little bit? Uh, the demands that come on us. Uh, his, his ministry demands, like I say, we're incredible, but he implemented a way to be able to do that, to be able to cope, and I think it will help us greatly as we look at uh, these texts today. And so the first thing we're going to look at is this Sabbath thing, again, but it's the healing on the Sabbath is, is the big issue. Um, why don't we take the first... Let's take six verses, and we'll go through that set. 
he entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Wow. Well, Jesus is going to the synagogue, and he does that every week. It's the Sabbath, and of course, when you say synagogue, Sabbath, it goes together. Uh, The last section left us on that controversial issue, right? The Sabbath. So, kind of only natural to go into this, that just kind of interesting that Jesus is found in the synagogue on the next Sabbath. Uh, last time we saw him in the cornfield, that doesn't mean he missed the worship at the, at the synagogue, but uh, at this time, now we're going to go inside there. And if you look back in chapter 2, 27 and 28 of chapter 2, it's, uh, Jesus said to them, "...the Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath." He's Lord of the Sabbath. He came to give us the Sabbath as a blessing and not a burden. So, that story rings true. Now we go to this man with the withered hand. I mean, right there in verse 1, it's just like chapter 2 goes right into chapter 3, doesn't it? Out of one week, right on into the next week or or whatever. Who knows? Maybe it's at that time. But um, anyway, uh, the man has a withered hand. Kenneth Wiest, who writes word commentaries, and it's really good, I'll refer a little bit to this, on what this meant as a withered hand. You think, what is a withered hand? I think probably pretty uh, self-explanatory. But it means, evidently, that he wasn't born with this withered hand. Sometimes that happens, doesn't it? Or, uh, the man that was blind from birth, or other people had had it for many, many years. And In, in this sense, it's, it's a, some kind of a... Uh, a defect on him, but it wasn't congenital. It wasn't that it came through some kind of uh, birth thing. It could have been an accident. It could have been a disease. It could have been uh, just anything. But it was where his hand was wasted. It was like palsied. It was kind of like paralyzed. And, of course, Luke, the physician, he writes in his Gospel in chapter 6, verse 6, And Luke is precise whenever he comes to different situations, especially dealing with diseases and ailments and things that people have. He said it was the man's right hand. Now, most people are what? Right-handed. I think most of you people are right-handed. I know one back there who is left-handed. Just a little bit different. Just kidding. Okay. Now, that means that's probably his hand that he works with, that he does everything with. 
And, of course, just the slightest little thing that you have with a hand, even a finger, it just messes you up on doing the most simplest things, right? Well, his whole hand is that way. He's not able to do uh, daily life work and who knows how it affected. Let's say if he's a carpenter, or you know, I'm sure that he probably worked with his hands. Um, this really takes him out. I mean, he's disabled. I mean, this is a serious thing. It's not just because it's just one hand, but it, it really affects him. Now, I'm not so sure what's going on here, but reading from different commentators, some of them say, and I tend to think this too, the Pharisees could very well have set this up and brought this withered man in there or made him very visible that Jesus would notice him right off the bat. And and we know that they, they want to catch him in a healing. And that day and time, it wouldn't have been too hard to do that, would it? Uh, but, you know, whether it was his own volition to be there or whether it was the Pharisees, um, we, we know the Pharisees know that he's going to go to synagogue. And it's a Sabbath. And we know that he's going to help the people that are needy, right? He's, he's going to do whatever it takes to make one well whenever he sees that in that situation. He's always compelled to do that. Is this a plant? Kind of interesting. I definitely know that they want to, whatever the deal is, they want to put him into a trap. They want to lure him into this trap of healing on the Sabbath day. So that's, that's verse 1. Now verse 2 is kind of interesting. They were watching him. Just see if he had healing on the Sabbath. That's really easy. Just watching him. Well, the verb there is imperfect. That means they keep on watching and watching. They kept on watching. It's a continuous action is what it is. They just didn't take a glance. I mean, they're really checking this out. That's the sense there. And they are bent on finding fault. They are going to get him. That's interesting. There's another... Um, preposition uh, that's with this verb and it's para and we we use that quite a bit you know like paraclete you know paraclete uh, parallel it's kind of a, a long side or beside that kind of thing the pharisee were like sideline observers watching the lord jesus continually now it's not that they're sitting there by him um there's an aloofness in, in their behavior all the way through this. They, they don't want to be seen with Jesus. I mean, you know, standing right by Him. And it's like they're saying that, hey, this guy's okay. They don't want to be accused of some kind of fellowship with Jesus, right? Because you'd think, well, a lot of people would think, well, why wouldn't anybody line up with Jesus? Look at what He's doing. Look what He's been preaching and teaching. you think, okay, i would never seen this before where the Pharisees were really checking Him out. Now, you're in the crowd and you're what? watching the Pharisees and you're watching them watch Jesus really intently. They're the watchdogs of Israel's religion. These guys were sent up there all the way up to Galilee from Jerusalem, let's say, to check out what was going on. And he's claiming to be somebody special, isn't he? I mean, they want to dampen the Messiahship here. They want him to violate the very regulations that they set they're just looking for that. What are they watching for? Well, to accuse him. So that they might accuse him. And that means to formally accuse in a tribunal. He's to be taken to a judgment. 
to be accused. And of course, that ultimately did happen, didn't it? As he was brought for many trials. So that's what they're watching for. So if the Lord heals a man on the Sabbath, their desire is to rush and take him there and uh, eventually kill him like a pack of wolves. And that's what's happening here. The, the man with a withered hand, he's a religious pawn. Do you think the Pharisees care about him at all? See, they miss the whole boat of what true religion is about. It's about, of course, we know it's all about God. But it's, all, it's also His people and, and how you're to take care of people and uh, a concern. They had no concern for this, <laughs> this guy. Uh, what a predicament he's in. Do they have any power to heal this man? Not at all. They knew it. But they're going to use him to condemn Jesus. Um, turn back to Matthew chapter 12, and verse 10. And a man was there whose hand was withered, and they questioned Jesus, asking, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. Now there we get the question asked by them. Mark doesn't report that in this incident. All it, all it uh, is saying there is saying they're watching him, and then Jesus says um, to the man, you know, get up and come forward. And he said, is it lawful to do good or do harm on the Sabbath? So he answers their question as he does here in Matthew. Matthew just added a little bit more for us. Mark, in his uh, immediacy, wants to get right to the point. And so neither one of them are wrong. They just add to each other what, what is going on. That's the beauty of the Gospels. And so you might say, uh, what is wrong with these Jewish leaders then? That's, that's terrible that they would use this man as a pawn uh, to, to set this all up. And, and that's kind of hard to think of today, isn't it? I mean, people today wouldn't do anything like that, would they? Well, actually, when you think of our medical industry, doctors, surgeons, all the practitioners, they are absolutely terrified of mitigation. That means to be sued. So, even some of the most smallest, minutest problems that a person has unless they know without a doubt what that situation is, what they can do, they'll usually give you or send you downstairs or somewhere to do a test. Because if they take the test, then that'll show that there has been something legitimate done rather than them guessing at it. At least you have something now on paper or in the system to show that, hey, it wasn't me that made the decision, it was these tests. So that's to protect them from being sued. And families will will sue, you know, if something happens. That's the kind of mindset that we are in, and that's the way the law courts are set up. Everything is is just out of whack, you know. And and there is no justice and righteousness in the system, and it continues to get worse. Uh, there have been a lot of physicians, doctors, surgeons that have left the practice because of that. I knew one right off the bat who was uh, a leading surgeon in this town. And he still had a few years to go. He was getting older, but he was very good at what he did. But he knew what was coming down the pike. He already saw it. And it was already happening. And they had to have insurance stacked upon insurance to be able to cover that. Well, you can't blame them. 
Either you fit into the system and go with what the system says, or you say, I can't do this and be the best that I can. So the pressure is on them. And uh, so you can see that uh, a lot of people really aren't taken care of because the, uh, surgeons are afraid of malpractice. Seventy This was a few years ago. It's probably a lot more than this now. 76% of doctors are concerned that litigation hurts their ability to provide quality service to their patients. 76%. That's three out of every four says yes. This this thought of being sued and this whole idea, I, I'm not able to practice and with my quality the way that I'd really like to. And and patients are being subjected to additional and unnecessary testing, which can mean hundreds of dollars for each one of those tests, if not thousands of dollars. And of course, the insurance is supposed to take care of most of that, but you're still stuck with some of it. And what if you don't have insurance? Doctors are threatened by possible lawsuits at every turn. 79% of doctors said they ordered more tests than they normally would have for fear of lawsuits. That's almost every one of them are, are saying we're doing more tests than really what we really should. Okay, let's go back. You get the idea? People are not really being taken care of because of the sin of mankind and the greediness. and It usually boils down to money and power and that kind of thing. Let's go back to the Jewish day. I don't know if we can kind of compare or even have an idea really what they were thinking, but here's the laws that had come in to their own system. Systems bother me sometimes. <laughs> if a wall falls on anyone, enough rubble was allowed to be cleared away to see whether that person was dead or alive. Okay? If he was alive, he might be helped. Depends on how much work you're going to have to do. But if he were dead, the body was going to have to stay there till the next day. They wouldn't even try to retrieve him. A fracture, you can't attend to that. You can't do anything with that. It was life-threatening. Then you could. If it's life-threatening, okay. But you couldn't even pour cold water on, on a sewer or something that you needed, a burn, let's say. You couldn't pour water on that in order to relieve it because that's considered work. Um, let's say you cut your finger. It's bleeding severely. You can bandage it with a, a plain bandage, but you're not allowed to put any kind of ointment or oil on it because that's work. Therefore, an injury was just to be kept from getting worse and let's don't do any more today. We're just going to keep it from, you know, that that way. We're not going to try to make it any better. That's the mentality. That's their thinking. Uh, if if it's life-threatening things, you know, um, don't, don't make it any better. Do what you can, but that's about it. That's what they're thinking. You know, that's, that's the idea. And uh, somebody who's been had a withered hand for a long time, hey, that's not a big deal. You know, you can do that tomorrow. Well, no, they're not even going to say that. We want him to do it today where we can catch him. So now verse 3 and 4, you got to love our Lord. He, he turns the tables on them. And he said to the man with a withered hand, get up and come forward. Let everybody see this. And he said to them, as he's standing there, is it lawful to do good or do harm on the Sabbath to save a life or to kill it? What a question. How are they going to answer that? 
You can't. I mean, they're trapped. They are trapped. Not Him. They are. This is our Lord. And you notice a lot of times He just asks questions. Now, He's going to get angry. But He asks a question they can't handle. I think that is very incredible. They knew that He could heal this man. But they wouldn't, wouldn't believe on Him. They knew absolutely He is going to heal this man. He has the power. He will do it. That in itself should say, this is, this is God. I mean, He's supernatural. But they wouldn't believe on Him. Is that hardness of heart or what? How hard can you get? So you know what He's showing them to everybody there? How wicked they really are. When he asked that question, everybody would have some kind of compassion and pity on somebody who is in a bad condition that he could do something about. And, of course, he asked this. Imagine it. Is it wrong of the Lord Jesus to perform a miracle of healing on this Sabbath? But this is interesting. They didn't think it was wrong to plan the destruction of the Messiah on the Sabbath. I mean, they are planning... A murder. And that's okay. But to heal a man on that is bad. How opposite can you get from what is right? So Jesus actually used the law. In the law, it talks about whenever even an animal. They, they, would, they would go more doing, uh, let's say if a, if a donkey had fallen in a ravine, and they, they would pull that donkey out. But if a human was down there, they may leave him there. Amazing. So the Sabbath tradition and most traditions of men are not consistent with what? Scripture. You go back to the law and you'll see what the Sabbath is and what those kind of rules were. But they had to go and make their own. So Jesus is definitely making an implication here and He's showing that what chapter 2, verse 28 says, so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. We are not to be in bondage to some kind of man-made laws. So you have to like verse 4, but they kept silent. What happens if they answer the way that they want to answer it? (laughs) They're going to look really bad. And if they answer it with what the right answer is, and they know what that right answer is, then it's going to make it look like they are wrong. They can't win. And then you move into verse 5. After looking around at them with what? Anger. Now that doesn't sound right. Jesus with anger. (laughs) But yet we know that Jesus did get angry. We have to think of the cleansing of the temple. Go to Mark 11, verse 15. Jesus actually did it a couple of times. This was the second time here when He uh, had done the triumphal entry in that last week that's in Jerusalem. Then they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. 
And He began to teach and say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy Him. <laughs> They've been doing hell along. For they were afraid of Him. For the whole crowd was astonished at His teaching. I first have to think about the power that He had physically to do what He did. Overturning these tables and to do all this. And you know there are um, police around there. There are people who watch out for guys who cause trouble and... Nobody's going to touch him. He does what he does, and uh, what a powerful man. But he is very angry, not so necessarily about the money thing, but what they were doing with that money. They were extorting people. They, they were charging more than what it was. You know, it wasn't of equal value. You, you, uh, like, you have different people coming in from different uh, um, places, and, and they used a money exchange. only thing is, they set up their... It's like a business where they were making money and, and really taking much more than people really should have been taken from. And it's the court of the Gentiles. And they jammed that up so much that the Gentiles couldn't even get in there. Jesus made that for the rest of the people to be able to get closer to that, that temple. So a lot of counts against what they're doing and what their whole motive was behind this. So, can you picture this scene? Uh, he's swiftly turning around with a glance and he's really looking at them. I wouldn't want to be a Pharisee after he's already trapped them and then he looks at them. Uh, probably each one of them, eye to eye. Remember what they had been doing? They had been watching him. Do you think they're watching him now? I have to wonder if they're going like this. He takes them all and he penetrates right into their very souls. And you know they had to know exactly what He's doing and that He is right. While He's angry, look at this. He has grief. We'll go back to our Mark 3. Grieved at the hardness of heart. He's very sad. While he's angry, can you imagine emotions that are going through Jesus? He had emotions, didn't he? He felt what we feel. I have to wonder how multiplied those are. The grieved at their hardness because they'd rather protect their religious traditions and their job than see this poor man healed. Look in Psalm 95, verse 8. how things can get so muddled. Something that seems to be so important is really not that important compared to what God has in mind. 95 verse 8, Do not harden your hearts at as Meribah as in the day of Massa in the wilderness. There David is reminding the people of Israel what had happened hundreds of years before. Maybe like 500 years whenever there was Moses and the children of Israel out in the wilderness says, don't harden your hearts like they did. They did. And they were left strewn all over the desert. And you look at Hebrews chapter, uh, around chapter 3, around that area, and you see the hardening of their hearts. As a matter of fact, let's go there. 
Hebrews 3, verse 8. You can say, well, how can these Pharisees be so stupid about all this? It's just absolute stupidness. Well, they harden their hearts. Look in Hebrews 3, 8. Do not harden your hearts as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, where your fathers tried me by testing me and saw my works for forty years. Therefore I was angry with this generation and said, They always go astray in their heart, and they did not know my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. They're not going to enter into His rest. Come ye who are all heavy laden and burdened. We sang the song earlier this morning, Come ye sinners. That's that invitation that He gives out. But yet, when people are so hardened, they will not. And they have... Look at, look at this in verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Now this is the book of Hebrews. He's talking to some people who had made professions of faith, said they were Christians, but their lives really never changed. They looked like Christians. They did the things of Christians. They were around the miracles and they were around the preaching of the Word of God. They were around the Holy Spirit. It was all around them. But in their own lives, they had never changed. And he's warning them there and saying, I'm taking you all the way back to the wilderness. And what does he call them? This never happens to an unbeliever. We're never called this. An evil, unbelieving heart. That word panaros is the worst degree of evil that you can think of. We might be sinners. We might still sin. But we're never called evil anymore. Matter of fact, we are called, according to Peter, in First Peter in our Wednesday night studies, we are called what? Holy. Elect. Choice. Right? And we don't. We might have some sin that we do, and it might be really things that are against the holiness of God. But we are never evil anymore. Never. We might do something that's what people do on the outside that are evil acts, and God forbid, right? But in this case, this is talking to people who were were hardened against God, and He pronounced a judgment. They shall never enter My rest, and they didn't. Grieved at the hardness. Look in Romans 9.18. Now this is kind of interesting. Romans 9. You guys are familiar with that chapter, right? Wow. It's a hard one. But it is true. And he's been talking about the, uh, <clears throat> the Pharaoh here during the time of Moses. And he says... So then, He has mercy on whom He desires. And He hardens whom He desires. Now we see it in Exodus where they hardened their heart, but we also see the tense where God hardened their heart. The two go hand in hand. What do you do with that? Just leave it there. Because one is responsible for their hard heart. But God will harden their hearts. And He will have mercy on a hardened heart and open that heart up. And others, He will not do that. He could have saved the Pharaoh. 
but He did not. And we see it. What? Ten plagues? One after another after another. And of course, 19 says, well then you'll say to me, then, well, why does He still find fault then? You know, for who resists His will? And you know, uh, you know, if they can't do it, they can't do it. And He says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? Right? Don't argue with God. The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it do that? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Some of their vessels are made for things that are, you know, like, let's say, vessels that would be made in the temple. Quite an honorable use. And, and of course, those would be as they worship God. But there are other things that are just for, for common use. And those are really handy, and that's what most things are. So he takes it to that potter and that uh, little illustration. What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience? He still has patience. Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And He did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory. We who believe in Him are vessels of mercy. We were in the same boat as everybody else. Why did He take my hardened heart and come in and give me mercy? It starts with Him. I don't know. It sure wasn't because of me. There wasn't anything there that was lovable. Even us, whom He also called, not from among Jews only, but also among Gentiles. And then He goes and shows that He went out and called a people that were not only His. He went to Gentiles then too and did mercy on them. Wow. This is deep. Hardness of heart. All I can say, they're held responsible for the hardness of their heart. Jesus had a righteous anger. And if it's over the things of God, check yourself when next time you're angry. Are you angry because somebody has offended you and has said something that just makes you mad? Well, if you are, you're sinning. <laughs> but is it something because it wasn't about me, but it was the cause of God? That's a good thing to check ourselves when we get angry because every one of us here have an angry problem. <laughs> And and I know so I don't ever get angry. Uh, you're lying. You just sin there. In one way or another, you're going to have some kind of anger. Some show it a lot better than others. <laughs> but the thing is, is that anger something that is dealing with righteousness? Is it about God's anger? That's what Jesus was angry about when He went into the temple. You remember that? My Father's house. Here it's talking about the way that they were treating His law and making their own laws. And it's totally dishonoring to God. And here's a man who can be healed and uh, they really out there to get their own profit out of it, getting Jesus killed. And so then verse 6, the Pharisees went out, and that word Mark uses so often. What is it? Immediately (laughs) began conspiring with the Herodians against Him as to how they might destroy Him. This is 
unbelievable. This can't happen. These are the Jewish Pharisees who are the Jews of Jews. And I mean, they don't like the Romans. They don't like anybody that has anything to do with the Romans. Tax collectors. Herodians they never got along with. The Herodians. Pharisees. Pharisees means separatist. They separated from other people. And of course, they showed you that they were separate by what they wore. All the big, the fancy gowns. They're separate. There's something special about them. They're not going to have anything to do with the Gentiles and especially these Herodians. They are not proper Jews. And matter of fact, they supported the rule of Herod. And Herod is an Edomite from the family of Esau. And Herod is uh, what kind of a half-breed anyway. And you know, They were continually coming in contact with the Romans. The Herodians were like this with the, the Romans. Romans rule that no way. Pharisees would not be dealing with the Herodians here, would they? Uh, we've already seen tax collectors. No, they don't get with them because of their Roman connection. And these guys are probably even worse if possible. Yet all of a sudden, to put a man to death, to put the Son of God to death, they're going to unite with people who they hate as they collude together. An unholy alliance to kill a man, but yet they would not make an alliance to help a man. The hardness of heart. Many of these people can be sometimes like what fundamentalist Christians, or how can I say evangelical Christians, can be. They never will put themselves out for anyone. When a man is in need, like this man right here, you'd want to help that guy, wouldn't you? But there's some people that would pass it over them. You know, you think of the the neighbor, the the parable that Jesus talked about, the Samaritan who is our neighbors, well, the Samaritans have got to be worse than the Herodians. I mean, the Jews down south hated the, uh, the mixed race of, of, of the Jews. And, oh, man, that was quite a story that Jesus told. So people who take the name of Christ today don't have sympathy, don't have the compassion for people who are maybe in uh, the poor section or the needy section. We sang that song. Very powerful. It's an old hymn. It's talking about the poor and the needy. People who are destitute. People who are not like us. And they're the sinners. Yeah, they're sinners. They are the they're the drunks. Any of you used to be drunks? Probably so. Alcoholics. Some of you drugs. Addicts. There are people, all sorts of people out there like that. And we can look down upon them and not have sympathy for them because they're not like us. Those are the bad people. See, and that's why this is so up to date with the church today. The church can't have that attitude. The church must see that, hey, there are people that are in need. And uh, I want you guys to be praying about some of the people who've been in contact with who have actually done a lot of work in this building um, that have come in, done some work for free, and done other work that really was not 
much of a charge at all. They're, they were helping Kent and, and such. But there's a neat little contact with these guys who, yeah, they've got problems. Yeah, they've, uh, they've probably been divorced. Some of them have probably been uh, drunkards, are drunkards. That's what they live for. Uh, you can go on and on. You know, we've, we've all been there. And that's some of the people who have helped in this building. And we might have a ministry to these people. They come into our church. Sinners who come into the church. We, we have a possibility of helping them. We could say, well, who knows? They're, they're out after us. I don't think you ever see Jesus with that attitude. And I think this is real. The religious orthodoxy are deaf to the cry of the needy. The religious orthodoxy are deaf to the cry of the blind. The religious orthodoxy are deaf are deaf to the naked, the hungry, the dying, and the ones that seem to be damned. And so therefore, that's a... That's the idea that's going on here in, in Mark 3. That's the attitude the Pharisees have. May we not ever have that kind of self-righteousness and, and thinking we're better than others. Let's move to the next section. Now this is dealing with the popularity of Jesus. No one has ever been this popular. No one has ever come close to this kind of popularity. No prophet, no sage, no rabbi, no wise man, no philosopher, no hero. Baseball players, football players, basketball players, all the sports heroes, politicians. Jesus, in a brief period of time, managed to do something unparalleled that no man has ever done or ever will do. This is our Lord. This is our sake. We know this man, Jesus Christ. I want to be on his side, right? Amen. Are you guys on his side? His team. Well, look what Jesus does. He's with the Pharisees in the synagogue. He knows what they're doing. He knows that they're conspiring. They, they want to destroy him. Totally do away with him. They want to kill him. So Jesus, knowing what's happening, and he's able to do that. He's God. So whenever he wants to foresee things or know what's going on, and he can read minds pretty easy. <laughs> he withdrew to the sea with his disciples. And a great multitude from Galilee followed. And also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon, a great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd, so that they would not crowd him. For he had healed many, with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God! And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. How popular is he? Well, he's got to withdraw to the sea. It's an act of protection. Somebody makes a threat on you, you probably better go, right? So there is wisdom in helping and serving people. Okay? When, when you know that, hey, this is not wise. We're not mats and we just are there to let people walk over us. There is always the balance. Sometimes you don't know for sure. You want to be prayerful about it. 
Jesus knew when to get out of situations. So we're not trying. We're not saying be fools. Be wise, because those people can take advantage of you and destroy you. So, so we see the balance here. So he, he gets away, and it's really common sense. He's had five confrontations with these these leaders. Leaves the location, goes to the north end of the Sea of Galilee, and he goes to a real isolated place. He knows where to go. <laughs> Let's get away from the crowd, right? It's going to be hard to do. So he puts himself at some distance from the murderous men. That's that's good. Now, we can estimate this in the tens of thousands of people that are here. And, and here, his fame is spreading so much. It says the crowds come from Galilee. Well, that's natural. That's where he's at. We know they're coming from there. And that's in the north of Israel. Then there's Judea. Well, that's where those Pharisees have come from. So they're coming from all the way down south in Israel, all the way up to the north there. That's where he's been hanging most of the time. This is in a period of time where there is no medical care. Uh, medical care we have is oh so much better. Today. Well, I mean, we really do have. Don't, don't get me wrong when I when I talk about doctors and physicians today, um, but they had no kind of way for really much doctoring, no medical care, no real healing by the medical arts. You know, that just didn't happen. People were dominated and and obsessed and possessed and indwelt by demons so much that um, he was constantly pulling demons out of people. It's a horrible time. And people live a very short time. Obviously, it, we don't even hear anything about Joseph, uh, which would be you know, Mary's husband. And uh, so he's probably dead at this time. There's a massive amount of illnesses going just everywhere. There's no relief. There's no relief for suffering. Demon torment there. And Jesus has a great theology. I'm not so sure that people are there really for the ultimate theology. Most of them are probably there to get what they need to be done. They need to be healed physically. Uh, Spiritual sense, though, isn't there too. And then it says Tyre and Sidon. Now, that's an incredible thing. Way up north, outside of Israel, these are Gentile people coming to see Him all the way into Galilee. I mean, they're going miles and miles and miles. These are like the the ancient Phoenicians uh, on the Mediterranean. And they're coming there. The seafaring Phoenicians. It's Tyre and Sidon. Gentile area. And, you know, masses of people flooding in. All the people in Capernaum know about him, and he's in that area in the region of Galilee, and now he's going up further, uh, up near the Sea of Galilee. Diseased friends are being brought by their friends, and it says, and he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd so that they could not crowd him or squeeze in on him or crush him. Um, I don't know if you've ever gone to any... You've heard about the rock concerts that they had where they had uh, the mosh pits. and I mean, where actually when they first started happening, especially in the secular realm, 
um, people actually were crushed, stepped on, killed. As, as the crowds went and, and went up further to, to get close, and they're all jammed in like this, you know. I mean, you don't have any room to even move your arms or do anything, and people are pushing each other. Well, this this has got to be multiplied with what's going on here with the, these tremendous crowds, and they want to bring their friends up, or they want to get to Jesus and, and touch Him, or they're, they're clamoring to get near Him. He gets in this little boat. And that's a pretty wise thing because if you get in a boat, at least you can push off and get out away from them. That's, that's how dangerous it was. I mean, the crowds could have killed him. And that's the idea of this crowding him and um, pressing in on him as it says in verse 10. So he pushes out. And, and in chapter 4, verse 1, I think we'll see this again. He began to teach again by the sea and such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down. The whole crowd was by the sea on the land. So there again, he's constantly having to get out in, in the boat and to get away from them. They're not all going to get out there in the water. Uh, I'm sure some of them probably were doing crazy things to get out there. You can imagine what the people do in crowds, right? popularity of him had to be just unbelievable, incredible. Nobody's been like this before. And some of these same people that are in this crowd, and probably many of them, are going to be the very ones later on, the very ones that are healed and are amazed by Jesus and listen to His teaching, are going to be saying, what? Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Because they're with the crowds. It's easy to go along with the crowds. Especially when things are going good. When things are going bad, what do people do? They hightail it out of there. What do disciples do? What they do? They ran. I mean, that was his own followers, right? Well, the nature of people. My. But he's popular right now, man. I mean, he's the hot thing in not only the town, but the whole country. As a matter of fact, extending on outside the country. So we look at the power of Jesus in verse 10, for He had healed many. And that word many just doesn't mean, hey, 30 or 40. It sounds like many, doesn't it? We're, we're, we're talking probably hundreds, thousands. With the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around Him in order to touch Him. Afflictions, Greek word, uh, it really means literally to scourge whip affliction. Have they been afflicted? Have they been beaten by a whip or something? And I was talking about the pain that they had. Agonizing ailments and diseases that never give you any relief. It goes on and on and on and it's severe. Would you have been there? I sure would have. Man, And I'd even listen to the theology, whether I believed it or not. But that's really what he wanted to to get across as he taught them. But what did the Jews think of these kind of infirmities? Where did these come from? Well, God caused it to happen. It's because they sinned. That's why they had these ailments. Well, that's not necessarily true, is it? I mean, God can cause things like that, but there was a man born blind uh, in John 9, and the disciples came up to Jesus and said, hey, is it because this man sinned? Or are the, are the parents, is it their sin? And he said, 
You know what the real reason was? I made him to be born blind. So at this moment, the Father can be glorified. I don't know about you guys, but humanly, that would be awful hard to swallow. But if you know God, and you know what sin is, you go, wow. He actually had a man to be born blind so that his glory could be seen. That's what John 9 says. Wow. Well, the thing is, it's not necessarily because of their sin. Ultimately, it is. Look what sin does. That's why we have sicknesses. That's why we have death. And it's going to go on and on until Christ comes back and sets everything fully right. Right? The word had spread that when He touched someone, they were healed. Chapter 1, verse 41. When they touched Him, when He touched them, they were instantly, totally healed. And so the crush is on. They're crushing, pressing in on Him and the powers explode out of Him as He heals just everybody that's that's there. Who knows how many. Verse 11 and 12, and we close this out. Now He's done this. People pressing around. He's healing these afflictions. People are demonically possessed. Who knows how many there are of those. Whenever the unclean spirits saw Him, they would fall down before Him and shout, You are the Son of God! Now, when Jesus shows up, the demons go into panic. There He is. They knew God. They, they knew Jesus, didn't they? They knew the Son of God. Oh yeah, from way back when, whenever they were good angels. Demons know Jesus. There He is. He is in a human body. They like to take over human bodies and possess people and control them. And Jesus is casting them out. This is crucial proof that the power that He has not only over the natural realm, but He has power over the supernatural realm. He is the Son of God. He has power over creation. And look what He's done to these people and casting out demons and healing the sick. They're saying He's the Son of God. We know who He is. He has power over His creation. He has power over the spiritual elements that people can't see. He has power over us, is what they're saying. He's the Son of God. You are the Son of God. You have demons proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. And you have the pharisaical religious leaders who said that He was a son of Satan. The demons knew. And what do they do, James says? They shudder. They are fearful of Him. They not only bow down to Him, but they scream, You are the Son of God. They knew the truth. They believe the truth and they are terrified. It's funny they keep on yelling out the name and who He is. Jesus doesn't want the demons for His press agents. He doesn't need their advertisement. He doesn't need them to represent Him. He wants no promotion from the demons. Just shut up. Be quiet. Don't tell anybody. That's that's great. Even if the demon's doing that, that's even better. Look, they're even admitting it, you know. 
Well, he has he takes no promotion from the filthy realm of Satan, and he will not play into that. He is no mere man, Jesus, with a small sphere of influence. His influence is universal wide. He's the Son of God, the Messiah, the King, the Sovereign, the Savior. A lot of those terms we used this morning in some of the songs that we sang, right? We're proclaiming His excellencies when we sing, when we read Scripture, when we pray, when we're reading the Word right here. We are proclaiming the excellencies. That's what He made us for. He doesn't need the demons to do that. He needs us to do that. We've experienced supernatural power from God. And He wants us to say that. The arrival of Jesus obliterated the distance that God had between man and Him. That being the law in between them as it was mediated to them. And Jesus comes and stands in place of the law. The law will frighten people The trumpets are blowing at that Mount Sinai. The thunder is clapping, lightning. Trumpets are blowing. And that's saying, step back and stay away. The law is here. And it will show your sin. It's a great gift from God. But it doesn't save you. It can't save you. The smoke and the fire and the burning... It showed them what, how they're to see the law as holy. Jesus comes near and He says, Come. Come. Come, ye sinners. He's gentle. We don't hear those trumpets. We don't hear the, the thundering and see the lightning. You can come to God in the Old Testament. You can come to God by the law And you know what that law will do? It will destroy you. Paul said it killed him. It killed all of us. Because we saw that we couldn't follow it. Thank the Lord for the law. It did its deal. It can't take us any further. It can't redeem us. You only come to God through faith in Christ. He is the Redeemer. And here He is presented by Mark in these two sections I'm amazed at him. Look at the way that he answered him. He gives him questions. And then he knows what to do. He, he meets the needs of the people who need the needs. You know who those are. There are other people that you know, okay, I have to be really careful. And, and so what did he do? He got away from them and went and did what he had to do. But at the same time, he knew that they could kill him just by pressing in on him. But yet he taught the Word of God. And... He did amazing things. He's controversial. And some people hate him, and most do. Or he's popular, and some of those people eventually find out who he is and they don't like him. Or to us, he is famous. And we want to make him famous to other people. Let's quote the word of prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank You for this book of Mark which so clearly presents our Lord and Savior, our Sovereign, our Master. Thank You, Lord, that He is the Director of our lives. Christ and the Holy Spirit, thank You so much for we would be like the Pharisees or we would want to be taking advantage of You just for our own sakes. We would be hardened. 
And as we would harden ourselves, then You would harden us even more and would never be able to see the light of the glory of Jesus Christ. You have brought us into Your glory. How can we ever say enough thanks? And here's all that You ask us to do. Proclaim Your excellencies. Thank You, Lord, for this day. We've had the privilege of being able to honor You. In Your Son's name, Amen.